Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Raphael. Hello. Hi. Uh, We're just mixing it up, everyone. I am acknowledging your presence so we can begin. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. It's nice to feel acknowledged. Yeah. Um, so, so, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I want to give a little uh, background on, on the audio. We we did an episode about audio, and then we put each of our voices in one channel, one in the left and one in the right. And some listeners were pretty annoyed. <laughs> With the yes, yeah, uh, but it was I don't funny. Know it was some it's like the most we've yeah, ever had. <laughs> a lot of response. People were like, well, "Are you crazy?" And then I listened to the uh, there's a podcast of Patty Johnson and Bill Pauhaida and uh, Art Fag City or Art F City. But it's not the podcast is called uh, like flushing the toilet. What is it called again? It's like toilet. Uh, we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, I don't know either. <laughs> Just Google their names. But no. but they they put each of their voices in one channel too. But the the topic wasn't audio. They just thought that was a good idea, I guess. So uh, now they, they, I've only listened to one of their podcast. They had like a first episode where they did that. I don't know if they did that on their their second yeah, episode. But it, it's funny. Like it sounds logical. Like oh one person is speaking over there one person is speaking over there they should each be in one channel but somehow mm-hmm. that's very unpleasant to listen to so we're ditching that idea it was just for that episode yeah okay yeah. well yeah i'm fine i'm uh yeah it, i i did find it annoying when i listened to it another person's podcast but anyway uh, i a reader t- sent it a tip if we ever did that again which we're not going to do but you can like switch in your your, if you're on an iPhone anyway, your settings to mix all audio down to mono. I don't know if you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, um, Solves that problem. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it was a one-time experiment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so today... So what have you been up to? What's going on? Um, I was in the Netherlands. We had the book launch and some lectures and was fun. And now I'm back home and working on new exhibitions and... Christina is traveling. She's off to LA to work there, so I'm alone for a week. And it was wonderful to see you in person for the first time. Oh, yeah. So yeah. The other thing is, last episode obviously was a bit weird, and our listeners we didn't give you much context or explain very well. So uh, we were together in the same city because there was this um, little unconference uh, or camp, as they yeah. call it. Yeah, I uh, want to intersect a little bit that we used to see each other quite often because you were teaching in. New York, and you, New York, you would come yeah. here once a week, and we probably met up once every two weeks. Yeah, that's true. And uh, so, for some reason, and we never started the podcast because we were able to talk all the time. Mm-hmm. And then, for, because of travel reasons, you weren't here, and then we were like, oh, maybe we should do a podcast. Yeah. And the, yeah, the moment so. we started, we didn't see each other for a year until episode 52. Yeah, it's crazy that that's how it worked out. But yeah. even though we were spending way more time together online, less time in physical yeah. space. Yeah. But anyway, on this occasion, we were in the same place, but it was pretty like constrained. Still. Like you had just got off a flight from uh, the Netherlands, and you just uh, came you from had, Germany. I had just come from Germany, so <laughs> we were both super exhausted. We were in this weird kind of corporate camp place, which was actually quite magical, and everyone was super kind, but like, anyway, it all came they together in about food. five minutes. They had great food. I enjoyed the steak. Um, great food, good people, mm. um, but then you hadn't been home to see Christina in a while, so you, you sort of jetted off, uh, and so we were really only together <laughs> for about 30 minutes for the length of the podcast, I, I maybe mean, a little bit. I arrived, and you were sitting there with a the crowd, so 
<laughs> I saw you, but I didn't really get to talk to you. And then the, the crowd had a lot of questions and back and forth, so we were engaging with them. And then I think we together had maybe four minutes. Well, yeah, it was funny because then we ended up having dinner with them and the mm. audience, and then yeah, like you. And I was like, "Oh, leave. this podcast is too political. I can't believe it." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and I, yeah, you got up to leave, and I like cornered you. I was like, "Hey, we, I haven't talked to you in a while. How's it going?" <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, I'm sure we'll have another another opportunity. But it yeah. was still nice to see you. And then and, uh, um, I'm really not against politics and i think it's very good that people are active and trying to make the world a better place but in the end and that's i'm, I'm, I'm switching uh, mm. swerving to a topic but in the end i think when when uh, it's fine that the, there's a lot of politics in art and it's good if people want to do that it's fine but for me i'm really interested in human perception at a base level with not too much narrative Mm-hmm. And and yeah, I I think uh, that's why I wanted to do this episode about aesthetics. And aesthetics comes up a lot in product design, and it comes up a lot in mm. art, and it comes in f- up in fashion and architecture, and it has many different. But I wanted to go back. To the original meaning of the word aesthetics comes from Greek and is is tied to perception and feelings, and that that's my. Uh, Whenever I think of aesthetics, some art history teacher taught us about the Greeks and how they thought about aesthetics and about the senses and the world coming in and being translated by the brain and how you feel and these very before narrative and before words and uh, mm-hmm. I feel defensive about it sometimes because people are like, well, the world is on fire and we need to address that, but. Right. Uh, I I feel like if you start to use art as a means to an end, it stops being art. So you're sort of talking about the original definition of aesthetics, like the philosophical uh, description of yeah. Beauty, well, basically. no, no, no. Before beauty, so with the, mm. with the Greeks, it it was, and this is my maybe my key point is that there's this this guilt uh, surrounding beauty, and so beauty is a luxury, and people are dying. So how can we talk about beauty? And but even before beauty, so the the Germans introduced the idea of beauty and, and the word aesthetics. But before that, it was perception, regardless of whether you think it's beautiful or ugly. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about using your senses in a non-judgmental way, just letting things come in and then translating them mm-hmm. and using those. So and that's my problem with when there's too much narrative in art is that it the the senses get dulled down or be, just, are just one ingredient of many mm-hmm. and i get very upset with this uh political art because it makes whenever you add academia or politics to the art discussion um it's almost like a child has to defend why the, a child likes ice cream. It's like, I want ice cream. No, no, you have to eat granola and you have to make the world a better place and you can't enjoy yourself. And I feel that mm. aesthetics have been pushed in that corner where it's like, how dare you enjoy moving your brush around? <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because obviously you know what argument I'm going to make on the flip side because I, you know, I think it's circular in a way. It's a circular argument. And I will say this. Um, I really enjoy that we disagree. So, it, I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, Boreard's like, 
sort of definition of relational aesthetics, not to get like all theoretical, but you did start with Greek philosophers. Yeah. Uh, you know, relational aesthetics, which came out, you know, in the late 90s, uh, referred to this idea that, you know, aesthetics could transcend those kind of perceptual, uh, like classic beauty kind of perception things and sort of talk about how everything, the beauty of everything and the organization of everything, like that you could um, that you could organize an artwork in such a way that it actually did change the world and whether that was positive or negative, I guess. Is, yeah, I think, is, I think is, relational aesthetics is basically the art of schmoozing. It's like taking <laughs> schmoozing to the, look at my friends, look which friends I have. That's but what's really, really interesting. What what's really interesting about I think relational aesthetics is it came out of Borat was kind of looking at language of the internet boom of that late '90s era and this idea that the user. But uh, it's really art you know, world art. It's really it, it, it's just always about I hung out with this collector, a blowjob with yeah, a collector, but, soup with a collector, I, yeah, soup with a curator. Yeah. It's always this this. Clicky. But that's why I would say that, that it's very that's very That's a that's a misrepresentation I think of the original thesis which was that you know like i said that groups of people make art together which is not that dissimilar yeah but from groups of people exclude other people so that it's it's the very nature if you talk about a group of mm -hmm. people and it's a group of experts which is artists and curators and it's about being in that group then immediately it's elitist and clicky yeah. it, but what i think is really interesting in in you know in sort of relationship to what you said about perception is that you know the, the basic idea is that it's a set of practices that take you know, a, 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 as their point of view that human relations and social context are more valuable than um, sort of utopian uh, imaginary realities that, you know, that that, the, that actually the, the living part, like something real, something that you live in, and the perception of that reality is the artwork. And, you know, I think that's why, like, the art institutions kind of took up relational aesthetics. And, you know, maybe it's like, you know, Thomas Hirshhorn with like cardboard structures or something like that. And they like, they aestheticized it, right? They tried to embed it with codes or meaning um, and, and, and beauty, right? Like, and significance when it shouldn't really be about that, right? It shouldn't really be something that you can own. Uh, and, and even though it's, a, it's supposedly a rejection of the 1960s, I think it's very much like the 1960s. Yeah, it is. Who it's I talk like about happenings. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, but exactly. it's, it's just, it, it, like happenings to me, if you don't know who's who and you walk into a happening, mm -hmm. you're like, okay, this is a crazy experience. I, I don't have to know who is the name of that curator, who is that collector. And to me, maybe this is a wrong perception, but relational aesthetics is all about like, well, you don't understand this work unless you know that they mm -hmm. had a historical dinner at that point and they, yeah. there were these flowers and these flowers signify that. And it, it's so... I mean, one of the fun things about it, though, is it really is kind of the end of art, if you allow it to be. So, and that's the tension, I think, in the art world that no one can ever sort of accept, is that it's kind of like, in the, you know, that's why I said it's a little bit circular, too, because you come back just to the everyday perception, right? When everything's performance art, when everything's relational aesthetics, when everything is perception, there is no object, there's nothing that you can trade or sell. Um, it's just being. And um, I don't know. So it's kind of interesting because I'm working on a project right now where I like have this accelerator for artists, right? And it, it's like you wouldn't necessarily think of it as art, and I might not think of it as art either, but I have to position it as art for art institutions to understand why I'm doing it. Is, um, is that but, also just to get it done? You have to frame it a certain way <laughs> to make well, it Well, it's happen? funny because like it's almost like it's easier 
it, I, I don't know. I'm in all these different worlds, and I think I've talked to you about this before, where it's like, okay, in the art world, they need it to mean this. In the like startup world, they need it to mean this, and the public needs it to mean that. Um, but ultimately, what I'm trying to do the, is change the world in a certain way, yeah. like in, in a very small world. Um, but, and but that's in, the aesthetic gesture. In that for me. sense, um, it, it's funny when you frame things being art. So, a, a famous work of relational aesthetics is uh, someone cooking and doing a dinner, and that's the artwork because that's really where the interesting conversation happens, mm-hmm. uh, which is fine. It's okay, it's a statement, but at the end of the day, um, why do you have to frame it as an artwork? Why not just have a dinner? So, It's a good question. Like, I am actually, you know, throughout this accelerator, there's going to be a series of dinners with different entrepreneurs and art world players that these artists are going to be exposed to. What I've been thinking about is, you know, it's funny, the way I've positioned it to artists and art institutions is like, I'm the choreographer. <laughs> of a giant dance yeah. that lasts a year. Yeah. But, you know, or ultimately I'm kind of... you're like a painter kind of, of a tableau vivant, or you start using these analogies. Yeah. You know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, um, there, there are artists that increasingly kind of hit the edge of what's possible with traditional art. And then, so then I can, I totally understand your perspective. Okay, let, let's take it all the way back to just like the pure um, aesthetic gesture and we should unpack aesthetics and what it means yeah. for you, because for yeah. me, like it, aesthetics are the relationship is the relationship between people, and, and really that's it. <laughs> so and the reality that they create together. But for you, I think it's a little bit different, right? Yeah, and but then there's also the colloquial use of the word aesthetics. Uh, if we want to turn to technology a bit, and yeah. and it's like the aesthetics of Gmail, which is a very functional. Uh, it's a functional result of engineer driven. Right. So that's the style component. And then component, there's, there's right? the aesthetics of, of iCloud on the web, which uh, mm-hmm. tries to look like a native app and therefore is kind of slow in HTML. Um, so there's a different philosophical functional underpinning and it results in a different look. So yeah. it, what I often... Uh, or a set of principles that drive yeah. a look. And I often uh, I find it problematic when people look at... Um, like, there's a thing in the Netherlands. I don't. I always talk about the Netherlands, but I think it is a general thing with conceptual art that they look down on people playing with form and color. Mm-hmm. So it's really condescending in it, 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 the way they talk about people playing with form because to them that's all been figured out in the 1910s and 20s. So there's nothing to add there. Why would you uh, play with color? There's there's nothing mm-hmm. to do. So we should make uh, social projects and. Uh, projects that address global problems and etc and maybe that's why I'm uh, defensive so this this idea that aesthetics are just a coat of paint on top of an idea or, or like an, an eggshell and you have to open the eggshell to get to the n- nutrition mm-hmm. and my whole thing is that the aesthetics is the work and so that the and, and that's I see that a lot in conceptual art that there's a lot of intention in a work mm-hmm. But you can't read that from the work itself. You have to read that from everything around it. You have to meet the people. And so the work is not a... um, Yeah, and like different people have tried to describe aesthetics on those terms, right? Like that it should be, that there's a style, that it's sort of non-utilitarian, right? Like that it's... It's a luxury, yeah. Well, that there should be an expertise or something, you know, virtuous about it. Like, 
you know, that you're the only person who can do this well, one thing. One analogy could way. be that you, you have food dye and, and food coloring and, and food mm-hmm. flavor, artificial flavors, and then you find a medium, like a, a, a cheap a blend, a cheap commoditized. Like if you make soft serve ice cream, you just get this sort of uh, almost uh, completely artificial thick paste, and then you add some strawberry flavor. Mm-hmm. And then people call that strawberry flavor the aesthetics. Like, oh, you just add a little drop of taste. Mm-hmm. But the other way to do it is to get the best strawberries grown on a special uh, soil at the right time and grown with sunshine and then just add a little bit of sugar and a little bit of cream and make ice cream that way. It's probably going to be a lot better. And what I mean is that you can't just say, pour some aesthetics on it. Like, like just mm-hmm. shake some salt on it and the, and the, the flavor is there. No, the, it has to come from within. But what's really interesting about what you're just saying is like there's a, the narrative behind the choice is part of the aesthetic. And so that is to say everything that led up to that color being on the page yeah. Yeah. Uh, informs the aesthetic. And, um, and therefore a series of choices were made and that those choices, <laughs> this is why I say it's circular, were determined by a certain uh, order of things and therefore potentially relationships between you and things and people, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. That, that we even farm strawberries, that were they wild strawberries, you know, were they- Yeah, but, uh, but still there's a philosophical decision. We're gonna engineer strawberries or we're gonna farm strawberries. Mm-hmm. But I think like it's, it's interesting to consider um, aesthetics. So those are maybe positive aesthetics decisions, but there, there's also the abs- absence of aesthetic decision making that is like something that I always struggle with as an artist because I'm just going to go straight to internet art and probably what part of the audience is thinking about because within the internet art realm for like a a solid chunk of time and I really do think this ties back to the stuff I was talking about in relationship with uh, Burio and the you know relational aesthetic is that like in internet art it went straight to the amateur aesthetic as like the primary aesthetic right Mm -hmm. and you know, so like well, there was it, the- it was a bit like letting the material speak or adding as little gesture to it as possible. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, the vernacular web, which is a fam- sort of famous uh, online essay about these aesthetics um, that I read when I was in school, it, you know, really informed a lot of artists' work. And so like, but it's so funny to have seen for year after year after year, the same aesthetic well, pervade. To me, to me th- what, what that implies or the philosophical thinking underpinning behind that is that the more you are an intellectual the more you're valued the less you Mm -hmm. are a craftsperson and a craftsperson wants to change the interface and optimize it and the intellectual is interested in the discussion around a default interface so it it's almost if an artist uses a, a default aesthetic that means they didn't get their hands dirty and so it's more a cerebral approach yeah, but I, so I was thinking, you know, um, the it's it's also part of that, like making it readable, you know. And so, if the audience can't read that it's amateur, they read it as professional. And if they read it as professional, because I've experienced this as I've tried to navigate these aesthetics. Because by the way, I you know I definitely started with this concept of like amateur aesthetics, and everything I did had like kind of a like a low quality sheen, like a you know, VHS tape kind of aesthetic, but even when yeah. I was doing 3D stuff, like it was always a decade behind. And the reason I did that is so people knew they were in on the joke, right? 
But as I've like well, thought th- about th- it more and more. I think also with digital, you, you run into this problem like I, I'm not as good as the people in Hollywood, so I'm not even going to try. Mm-hmm. But we know, of course, that that like in recent years, like there are plenty of artists that have like started to explore high end digital aesthetics. Right. Yeah. Um, but still this like Internet art vernacular web aesthetic pervades. And like, I guess the argument I'm making is that that's because that signals to others that it's art. And if it looked too much like the internet, you get this problem that I've encountered several times. Like, and even if you go check out my accelerator, I'm like, I'm using all just like high end, like internet uh, aesthetics. You use like, uh, if I was bootstraps a regular brand. and CSS. Yeah, I use Bootstrap and... and everything. Yeah, and my argument would be like that's because I don't. If I was to make the other choice, that would be an aesthetic choice that was not, you know, outside of the well, reality you, I was trying you, to create. Yeah. It, it always it it's also the the question of uh, when you do when you take a conceptual approach in the tradition of conceptual art is to mm-hmm. take an idea and then add as little uh, visual decisions to it as possible so the idea shines through so mm-hmm. as soon as you start adding too much sauce onto the steak like conceptual art you just want the steak and maybe a little bit of salt but you don't want the the, the creamy sauce on top of it it's an interesting analogy i was just thinking it's because art's so uncomfortable with capitalism that it needs to pretend like it has nothing to do with it and that it's amateur it's always going to be amateur or pro amateur but as soon as it's professional then it's embedded in capital and people reject it and i found that really interesting because i'm trying to work with capital as material or aesthetic so like the economy i think is you know, I think of it as paint, the same way Nam June Pike thought of television as, um, you know, as paint. And um, the same way now Theaster Gates might think of a neighborhood as paint. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be like, it's relatively dangerous. But what's interesting is the aesthetic in there. It's always like, I don't know, With the, let's go back to this internet aesthetic. There are people that are pushing the boundaries forward all the time, like the so-called, you know, people that are pushing style, right? You might think like, I don't know, in the mid-aughts, it was like Brad Trammell was like, no, that's not internet art aesthetics. <laughs> this is aesthetics. The, the taco with a lock through the it. The trolling, like uh, trolling yeah. aesthetics. And- yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then, he, yeah, and then he went on to do like trolling aesthetics and stuff. And so there are people that are mining the present, and then there are people that are... Well, that's a big of- part of art is always challenging uh, what's ugly and what's beautiful. So as soon as yeah. everybody agrees something is ugly, then it's the moment to be like, oh, no, I think it's beautiful. Yeah. And I only bring up internet art because it's like a very present thing in my life. Yeah, and, and it's relevant and, to our audience, so we can uh, we can visualize well, wonder, it as you're talking. Yeah, exactly. But I just do, I do wonder like whether in painting, um, you know, you know, I have to say I'm not an expert on this because well, if, <laughs> if I go you to a think painting of, show, I'm like, yeah. If you think of an artist like Roy Lichtenstein, and he was painting in the tradition of Picasso, and, yeah. and it was kind of doing abstract expressionism, and then he famously just saw a comic book and repainted that as as uh, direct yeah. as possible yeah and that was the most shocking aesthetic at the time because you was supposed to it was all about the hand and the most personal gesture and the, the inner workings of your soul and right. then to appropriate a visual language and to appropriate a drawing and turn it into a painting was so cold and removed and ironic <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and now it, it looks like really, art, but at the time it was like, "What the fuck? This is the ugliest thing ever." Right. Personally, I always find when I'm in that space, and I'm not saying I'm good at this, but when I'm when I'm there, when I can't tell whether it's art or not, I get personally very uncomfortable as an artist. Can you give an when example? I, when, 
Yeah, I think like when I'm making a bootstrap template okay. for, for like a well, sign-up page. Well, that's also the internet. You know? the, the, the context is not uh, defined. So you end up yeah. at a link and you're not sure if this is an educational project. Uh, maybe it's a new school that's funded by uh, Silicon Valley. And yeah. so if you, if you were showing the same aesthetic on a big screen in a fancy gallery, then immediately your perception is different. Yeah, but to me, it always seems relation in relation with the audience. So as soon as the audience understands <clears throat> all of the components that comprise the aesthetic, right? The style, the like, the sociology, like the you know the utility, all of the 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 elements, the, the critique that comprise an aesthetic, then they might then they're like, oh yeah, of course that's what he's doing, yeah, or that's I, what they're doing. I think internet art specifically is is uh, in a very open context, so you might encounter something and you're like, is this guy a troll or is he an artist pretending to be a troll? <laughs> so that's the story of my life because like the stuff that now people think is ridiculous that I was doing early on in my uh, career when I was living it and doing it, I was getting tons of hate mail from people that were like, you're a total weirdo. Like, how could, <laughs> why are you doing this? <laughs> do you uh, miss that hate mail, getting that? Did you I enjoy do, it? I do. Like, I kind of want to get back to that. That's why I'm like struggling with well, like, the, how far into this can I probe? Like, yeah. how much of an entrepreneur can I become? Well, this is the thing that maybe um, when I talk about aesthetics, it's not that I just mean paint on a canvas or a, a beautiful composition or... A, Mm-hmm. But it's also, and that's maybe where I get defensive. An artist has to be selfish and decide, I live outside of the world. I live in dream world, and sorry, I'm not helping you. I know you're lying on the street and you're dying, but right now I got to just be in dream mm-hmm. world. Yeah. And so you, you have to, as an, I think, as an artist, you have to really deeply be okay with that. You have to be okay that you're not helping people directly and you're useless. And that's a really, well, th- really yeah. hard thing to accept. And that maybe that's what I'm trying to get at. Maybe <laughs> that's what I struggle with. But I would say, like, I would modify that statement and, and state that you just have to have a vision of where you want the reality you want to create, like where you want to go. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't always matter, though, in my case, it does whether people understand what that is before you get there. And, but th- there's something about, um, for example, large corporations, they can get so mm-hmm. big, like AT&T, that they can afford to do fundamental research. And that's historically also a point where a lot of those companies fail. Like Xerox mm-hmm. did a lot of fundamental research and then famously Apple took the GUI and Ethernet and ideas like that and made it work in the market. My point is that when it's, it's a bit the opposite. So artists are supposed to do fundamental research and then when they start to incorporate a lot of other things because they're like, well, I'm not just a... Like Murakami starting to become a filmmaker and he has an art fair. Mm-hmm. And I think his early work was much more focused. So ma- mm-hmm. maybe that's the simple word is focus. That's an interesting That's an interesting way of thinking about it. I mean, yeah, in the corporate sphere, uh, we talk about focus all the time. We also talk about a vision, but like, because you're trying to get everyone aligned around... Yeah, like Google with to, Google X. In, uh, yeah, yeah, we're trying to create one thing together. Um, and if we distract ourselves too much then we're going to get confused about that and we'll put something out there that doesn't mean anything to anyone um that's confused aesthetically if you will i mean i, I you know i've always thought of i've never really thought of aesthetics as a visual thing even in my early um work like it was somewhat visual but it was like i often used the term the aesthetics of failure and i know that a lot of glitch artists kind of think about that too so it would be like 
the aesthetic was kind of generated by the circumstance I was in. Um, so it's like if I was working with video or like, let's say the glitch artist, I was working with a certain codec. If I like yeah. changed a few things in how I output my work, then the, you know, the codec would, the, the system and yeah. the rules of that, that, and, of that and codec, then you that get compression in, algorithm. You get in an area where beauty is not a relevant word. You're just like, oh, this is something new I haven't seen before. That's right, but it, it's so it's the exposition or the you know of the invisible, right? So it's like, oh, there it is. That's a thing, you know. I remember when remember when there was like um, James Bridal tried to do the new aesthetic, right? Um, was that what he called it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that website. Right? I never, was I like, never really understood what it was, but I heard about it. Yeah. Well, the, the way he wrote about it too is like, oh yeah, he's trying to point at something that people all felt like they knew, like a, a way of looking at things or perception, but they couldn't, you know, put it all in one, they, like they, in a sentence, right? Like, you know, someone couldn't write a book on it yet, or he couldn't. And so he started a, like an image blog uh, with different examples of what this was. And it was because of all these developments in computer vision, like there was a, a bunch of technology developments, like computer vision and um, privacy and just like, 3D rendering and like all of these cultural things mashed up with technological things resulted in works that couldn't be um, sort of categorized uh, with the language and writing of that day. Now, I don't know what happened to the new aesthetic, but other people have tried to like promote other aesthetics in the time since then. But what he was doing was he was saying like, there's something there and I don't really know how to describe it, so I'm just going to put a bunch of things together, like a mood board, basically. Which, by the way, is what designers use to comp- sort of develop an aesthetic, which can mm-hmm. be a feeling. It's not always just. It's not yeah. always easy to point at it, right? Yeah, and and sometimes when the the sources are too external, then it's too much like the the strawberry flavor on top of bland ice cream. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When like when you when the, you so what what happens is you take the end result of others and apply those visual cues to whatever you're doing <laughs> but it's the end result so you're not taking all the feelings and the thoughts and the what what made everything yeah we all have experienced that probably in los angeles or something at a coffee shop with like distressed wood and like, <laughs> yeah that, that's another kind of like use of the word Edison aesthetic bulbs. like when, when you use the word aesthetic and it's more about trend or look or feel but, it, but it, it, it is yeah. interesting when you talk about like, oh, that phone looks kind of 2015 and now the aesthetic is edgeless, edge-to-edge screen. Um, and That's my argument. And it's, it's, robbed also, of its, it, yeah. it's robbed of its social meaning. It's robbed of all of the... I do think the conceptual underpins the, the aesthetic, right? Like even in classic examples yeah, of beauty. But it can go wrong where the, someone, the conceptual becomes too narrative and then right. it, it becomes this essay and then at the end you, you have <laughs> right. a little sculpture but you're like, yeah, that's just for the collectors. I don't care about that. That's like put, it, put, it, put a bird on it as in Portlandia, right? Like, <laughs> it's like, uh, it's the la- yeah, it's the afterthought rather than central thought. And yeah, I think and that's then the, actually the energy of the work is in the text and not in the object. Yeah. So text, of course, in the form of concrete poetry or even just text in of itself can have an aesthetic, right? Yeah. Like yeah. People wrote about it. But you don't want it I'm, to I'm be... I'm not an expert in this, but I know that writers talk yeah. about aesthetic too. When, when I talk about aesthetic, I'm also interested in the energy of the work. And so uh, mm-hmm. it, it's. I think that's always interesting to collectors. It's like, okay, this artist is a very interesting person, but the works don't reflect that or the other way around. And mm-hmm. if you think of Warhol and his factory... That was really where you would feel the energy, and then maybe the works right. themselves are 
leftovers of a moment. But ideally, you want to work that just for centuries, just every time you look at it, it's generating new energy in, inside of you. Right, right. Well, that's, a, you know, and that's maybe, yeah, and maybe that's exactly my point of like when you make art that's very heavily relying on a timely moment and a timely narrative, and then it, the work doesn't have the energy later on. You know, classically, you get this kind of like, this idea of a, of a work that gets better or different with age as context and sociology and everything changes around it. Like the meaning of the work changes. and It keeps generating new meanings or new feelings. Yeah, exactly. And so it stays vital. As, yeah. you know, you might, uh, but it, um, it, at the same time, it, it's funny. If you make something with the intention that 400 years later it's still interesting, you might not <laughs> make something that at the moment hit really hard. So if you're doing a school and it's about the, that moment, it's really hard to read that years later, but at the moment it, it's very intense. Right. Well, like, you know, we could try, like we could take a sample artwork from, from recent memory. Like let's say like Christian Marclay's The Clock or something, which was like, was that like 10 years ago? That was like a hit mm -hmm. work. If we were to look at it to get today, is it like, a, the aesthetic there was borrowed. So it was the aesthetic because it was made. It was a clock that was made up of. It was appropriated um, aesthetic. Yeah. Yeah. So an algorithm like takes clips from movies from no, all of history. With did it, I think. I don't know. I think it's algorithmic. Mm. I think. I thought it so, was anyway. a whole team of interns. Well, how could that that work? Because it's always different. It's never the same. Like it's. Uh, no, it's whether isn't it just twenty four hours of movie samples that he put together. What? I gotta check this out. I'll put it in the show notes. I saw it. Pretty a, sure. I saw it a, in a museum, so I'm not sure if it was generative or if it was a video. But I thought it was just one huge 24-hour video file. Oh, I mean, my understanding of it is it, and we'll, I'll put in the answer in the show notes. Is it's algorithm? Let's just say it's an algorithm for the sake of this argument. Yeah, it's more fun. So, <laughs> the algorithm draws like uh, you know an, a, a video clip from every minute of. Uh, uh, you know, so in the video clip, there's a clock, and every minute is then like uh, represented to. I'm doing a terrible job of this, like as a clock. You, right? You're That's seeing why the piece clock. Uh, uh, he, if it's 12:01, you watch the piece. There's a clock in a movie from some movie part clips of our history. Yeah, there are movie clips where you see a clock in the movie, and he took all the clocks from all the movies. Yeah, so all he did is assemble all these clocks into an algorithm that spits out the clip um, at the right time of day. And whether or not it's a video or an algorithm maybe is not even that important. But if you were to look at that work in 10 years, A, the aesthetic value, whatever it is, is informed by history. So it's like, it's uh, it's not like any choice. It was an arbitrary choice based on whether the the clock is visible in the frame or not. And so the the test we're doing here is like, is that... Does that work get better or change meaning with age? Um, well, I think specifically if you use archive material, the, the older it gets, uh, the perception changes a lot. Like if you look yeah. at a, um, if if you look at fashion or family photos uh, two years ago, then you're just looking at like, oh, that was a funny moment. But if you look at it 50 years later, it's like, oh, I can't believe people wore those kind of clothes. So. Right, that's true. Yeah. And even the pop artists like, you know, you mentioned uh, Liechtenstein or Warhol, they would have borrowed brand imagery uh, or Kruger in the 80s. They would have borrowed even like slogans and ways of speaking that would have been about that time. Yeah. So like, yeah, we don't have 
you know, Brillo soap anymore, or like even Campbell's soup seems like that's not a staple in every house yeah. anymore, right? And then the, ideally, the, the the most timeless thing would just be things like still lives and flowers. But even then, you'd be like, oh, that's a very '80s way of painting a flower, or that's a very 19th century way of painting a flower. Right. And so, I mean, then I guess what we're talking about in that regard is like, it's not really possible for an art to, you know, for the work to escape its original context. However, our perception of that context might change. So I guess like, if I'm looking at Warhol and thinking like, ooh, like the 1960s and 70s were really, uh, really interesting. Like, I'm not from that. I'm going to like, but I kind of understand some pop aesthetic values from that era. And some of the history that I've been taught in school and it's seen in movies. And that allows me to kind of like make up a story about that time. That story comprises an aesthetic that I can then like borrow um, or yeah. interpret. It, it, it brings me to uh, Blade Runner. Did you go see oh, yes. the new ones? Ah, I'm so mad. Wait, <laughs> you- Kristen, saw, Kristen saw it with her mother without me. And like, oh. I could see it with a friend, but I, I didn't like it chance. that much. But it is interesting when we talk about trends and aesthetics. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I think that's a great there's, point. I didn't there's think a of defining that. movie made <clears throat> in the 1980s They're called Blade Runner. Based on Philip K. Dick's yeah. Do Androids Dream of Electric Ridley Sheep. Scott, who kind of came from advertising, so he was really good at making very visual, making strong visual impact in a short, in like in, in in shots. Not even without actor speaking, he can tell a lot of a story in a shot. Hmm. I didn't know that about Ridley Scott. Yeah. yeah. Well, now you went know. on to do Aliens, like, yeah. of course, like his most famous series. I think Michael Bay also came from commercials. So it, it, well, that's I was trying to become a director for a while, and they make you. They for, it goes music videos, <laughs> commercials, television. That's the then trajectory. Movies. Yeah. That's the trajectory. That's anyway. the pyramid. But yeah. anyway, so very visual movie, and uh, famously the the '80s movie. Philip K. Dick saw it before he died, and he's like, "Wow, I don't know how you guys got into my head and extracted all that." So it really, <laughs> it was really his vision. And the new one, I noticed there were a lot of contemporary art aesthetics. So there's a, Jared Leto is the, the leader of the big corporation. He's blind and he's kind of like a guru. And mm-hmm. he's always in this room where there's water reflections on the ceiling and on the walls, which um, comes from Olafur Eliasson, I think. It, it, a lot of shots felt like galleries, like an empty space with a light effect all over, or uh, mm-hmm. some sculptures, or a large open space. It, and so that's the thing where... Art can be this sort of R and D for the rest of the world. Like, uh, I thought you were going to say in this film, though, that like, because when I was looking at the trailers, I've gone seen the film that they like, they pretty much it's set like twenty years in the future from the original, which was set in twenty nineteen, right, or something like 2020, that. Twenty twenty, and this is twenty forty nine. Yeah. So okay, so it's set a few years in the future, and what I saw in the trailers, I was like, wait a second, why does why does that future look so much like the future we imagine in the 1980s? Yeah, well, the, <laughs> so, like, I think I think don't the we 19- know a little bit more about what the future would look like? I think now? the 1980s had a sort of height of Cold War, and you had Mad Max and Blade Runner, and this whole thing mm-hmm. of post-apocalypse after a nuclear holocaust. But like a very simple example would be like there's incandescent light instead of LED light, <laughs> yeah. and I'm like, wait a second, like we don't even have incandescent light anymore. <laughs> yeah. So it's like this romantic well, it, yeah. futurism. The, yeah. yeah, I mean, then we get to futurism, which is also strange. But it it is interesting when you the, the aesthetic of the post-apocalypse. I think Mad Max really cornered that of this sort of mm-hmm. tribal life with technology, but crude technology, 
And so you have a motorcycle gang and they all have weird uh, artifices on their body and sort of like a <laughs> you know like a totem but pole. i also heard i i heard some reviews of this film that it was like they, they there was just like a failure of an imagination even like about almost everything like it was kind of just um it was the same movie like but the yeah yeah but they've had 30 i think years we're in a moment it. of uh, recycling culture yeah but it, it, when when Blade Runner originally came out, it was a very new vision of the future because before and that, that was an aesthetic, bef- and that was an aesthetic achievement. Yeah, right? before that, the future was very clean. Everything was mm-hmm. high tech and glossy and white and like. You mean like two thousand and one, a space odyssey? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and and even uh, cheesy sci-fi movies. Everything was always people were in silver suits and things like oh, that. Oh, like Star Star Trek. <gasps> Yeah. Yes, let's talk about Star Trek. <laughs> let's talk about <laughs> aesthetics. <laughs> yeah. We're what about Spock's haircut? About What's the aesthetic choice there? Yeah. Uh, man. Okay, well, I know we're not that we've but, already But maybe what I'm getting at is that, is that um, um, aesthetics are also used to persuade. So they're not so innocent. Like, it, my mm-hmm. view is like, oh, it, it, there's the artist and you're like a child and you're just observing and you're doing whatever you want outside of yeah. practical concerns. But yeah. then... You can take those aesthetics and manipulate people into either buying things or voting for things or changing behavior. No, that's very true, actually. It reminded me of like, so I did just mention Star Wars, uh, Star Trek, and I'm going to talk about it for just a second. There's a new Star Trek series on. Have you watched it yet? No, no, not yet. It's uh, it's it's called Star Trek Discovery. Uh, yeah, I'll, w- I'll wait very, until like, it's on Netflix. Inventive with the names. Well, it's actually, yeah, there's some like interesting aesthetic choices. So first of all, you know, you have the Starfleet, which they they managed to like modernize a little bit, right? So it's like if you, Is I watched Voyager, I didn't watch, I didn't watch Deep Space Nine, so like I have just Voyager in my '90s Star Wars, Star Trek aesthetic. What about by next the way, I, TNG was before Voyager, and I yeah. did watch uh, parts of that. Yeah. But so Voyager is the most contemporary Star Trek though that I remember because I didn't watch Deep Space Nine, but. It's still been 15 years since there was any new Star Trek on television. Well, there was of course, the movies the, that kind of look Star yeah, Wars-ish. But the movies aren't really Star Trek because yeah, it's like zero and, science. And behind, even you know? <laughs> the movies were even directed by the same guy who directed the Star Wars reboot. So they were really yeah, interchangeable. They're like, it's like space cowboy kind of. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's just like. But Star Trek was always more idealistic with the, the, a humanist humanism embedded in it, a, a humanistic yeah. philosophy. And social yeah, values. Post-capitalist, post-money mm-hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. I, I read exactly. that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are like, are you of the Star Wars school of thinking, of the sort of hyper-capitalist <laughs> pirate thug, or yeah. are you of the Star Trek mindset? Well, yeah, so they updated it slightly, but I think the thing that they updated that really bothered people, or I don't know, I haven't read enough on this, but like, or that's really maybe interesting is they updated the Klingons. And the Klingons, they kind of went to town on, you know, the Klingons always had these kind of like veiny foreheads or whatever. But now it's like, they took that and it's like, they're like, it's like Versailles or something. <laughs> they're like, let's take, let's bring the French Rococo. The fancy the- Klingons? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So like their ships are like, like super ornate, like um, almost actually like modern 3D printer aesthetics, but like even more ornate than that. And like it's all brass, and like they yeah. wear these like immaculate, like these all these like crazy. Um, I love it when they have to invent beauty in in alien life forms. So you you arrive at a planet and you're like, this is an idyllic planet where people dedicate <laughs> their lives to aesthetic pursuits, and then they have to invent the sculptures that the aliens are making. Well, yeah, and then the most controversial thing, of course, is that like <clears throat> they're kind of all dark-skinned versus the like 
I don't know, light-skinned it's Star Trek. It's hard to have fun these days, though. <laughs> anyway, it's a, it's worth checking out. I, I have The jury's still out because actually the protagonist is like a, a woman of color who's really in, interesting in the show. But like the aesthetics of the Klingons though, are just like over the top. Um, and like, I, I'd be interested in hearing what else they think of them. <laughs> but it's a bit guy, like Geiger or something like in yeah. Alien, right? Like it seems like these are the two aesthetics. Like humans are gonna, are tending towards, like you said, the simple, it's either dystopian or like a white cube. It's like gallery or alleyway or something like that. And then the aliens are always tending towards some kind of like French Rococo versus like ornamental kind of like chandeliers made out of, uh, actually, you know, it's funny though, because like, I think like aesthetically, have you looked at very much of like the recent work around generative design? Like, um, no. like basically when you tell computers to design something like a, a you, you were example. talking about the Autodesk architecture. Yeah. Like I was at Autodesk offices and they were showing me all those various generative design projects and almost all of them actually had this, almost like Klingon or Nouveau Klingon, let's call it, like, look, where it's like... <laughs> Klingon Coco. It was all, yeah. <laughs> it was, like, all super ornate and, like, like organic, but, but still... It, to me, philosophically, relational aesthetics are very Rococo because it feels like the art of the courts where people are, like, hanging out being like, oh, Francois, what shall we do today? Let's make art about our jolly life. Because we mm. eat soup together, haha. <laughs> but they would—you would never invest in the ornamentation because the but ornament the, but would the, be the, wasteful. But the fact that you're making art about hanging out is ornamental. That's mm. maybe my point. It's—it's it's very high, 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 high culture. Yeah. Well, my argument from the beginning of the podcast is like great relational work. You wouldn't know it hit you until the world had changed, right? So it'd be like, oh, I didn't know that the world could be this way, and I didn't even realize that I was a part of the artwork. I didn't know until... people eat soup. <laughs> yeah, what is this I'm, I'm just uh, I'm referring uh, uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name exactly Korakrit something uh, he made a famous work where uh, the, the dinner kill me on the show notes <laughs> the, the dinner the dinner is the artwork and so when you uh, when you talk about relational aesthetics the soup is a big keyword it, it's it's about sitting down and having soup so that's what he's known for making soup mm-hmm yeah, there's a funny example. Uh, I can't remember. I read it once, where it's like um, soup can be both like a like a, a like a beauty aesthetic and a disgust. It can evoke the feeling of beauty and disgust. Because like, it looks like vomit. If, well, because like if I said, uh, oh yeah, it's like if a man with a beard has soup in the beard. <laughs> neither a beard or soup is disgusting, mm-hmm. but the combination of a beard and soup is. I think a, a beard on its own is pretty gross. But yeah. But a stripe of soup in a beard is like yeah. I think Kant said it. <laughs> that is like disgusting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we we should um, run an ad. Oh yeah, let's do an ad. Okay. the The ad comes from comes from uh, David Kiesgio, and he's organizing the Wrong Biennial. All right, let's do it. Yeah. The Wrong, famous biennial on the internet. So the Wrong is the largest and most comprehensive digital art biennial today, actually. Um, the Biennale, I don't actually, should I say Biennale? But anyway, is in its third edition. It's happening from November 1st, to 2017 to January 31st, 2018. A global event aiming to display digital culture, open to participation and spreading its content through online and offline locations around the world. So the wrong is free to participate and to attend. And it's mostly, everything is mostly one click away. If you are a digital artist and you want to submit your artwork, many pavilions of the wrong are open to submissions. 
Check all open calls at the wrong Facebook page. Facebook.com slash the wrong Biennale. Should we type that or spell that out? It would be the wrong, uh, which is the wrong, and then <laughs> B-I-E. We'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> And then A L E. Yes, I'll put yeah, it in the show notes. Or just so, Google it. Yeah. If you just, or go to yeah. the wrong.org. I, I, I recommend Googling it because Google's better at search than Facebook. <laughs> yeah. So go to the wrong.org, uh, the wrong mainframe webpage, as they say. And uh, you can visit all the pavilions, features, and info about the embassy activities all around the world. Do, do, That's, do, it. Do. That's the ad. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, David, for that ad. Yeah. Um, and I participated in the wrong before. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. I did, but it, it's so chaotic that I never even saw how, but I think there was something in it. But it's such a vast enterprise that... Uh, yeah. It's amazing, the scale of it, actually. Yeah, and there's yeah. usually lots of interesting curators and artists. So go check it out. Yeah. Um, so where were we? We were at Star Trek and Relational Aesthetics. Oh, yeah. And Soup. Well, yeah, so Star <laughs> Trek actually... Beard. Yeah, that's where we Though were. I do think Star Trek summarizes it very well, which is like, there's the Starfleet aesthetic and the Klingon aesthetic. This is the nerdy There's also uh, one of my and favorite... And they're social yeah. and, and stylish. One of my favorite characters is Data, the, the android guy. And mm-hmm. he, there's a moment where he is painting, but he also has a Mondrian in his room, in his cabin, and he's playing seven symphonies on top of each other because he can comprehend everything much faster than a human so he's like painting and you hear seven symphonies and a Mondrian painting behind him there's also a hilarious poem about his cat that we, which we should put in the show notes <laughs> yeah. Uh, what it, uh, yeah I'll put the <laughs> cat poem I, I mean that is a, a thing with, with the new aesthetic and whatever you want people are exploring what aesthetic choices will AI make yeah, so that's where I was going with this like Autodesk visit and the story and, and, and what I'm seeing aesthetically from these generative systems is something that I haven't seen before. It's closest to like what you might see like like someone who does bad metal work. Well, <laughs> it, it was similar with the, the Google Dreaming explosion when uh, they made this neural network that, on image recognition yeah, like and then they... It's actually very ornamental. In yeah, a way. but they're like, oh, what if we feed the, the algorithm images and tell it to draw things based on what it sees? And it, it started doing that. And I remember the images came out and they looked so weird. And I was like, okay, I give up. I, I don't have that much imagination. This is really incredible. But and and the whole really, no, it, the point is the whole internet yeah. blew up. Everybody was sharing it like this is amazing. AI is coming yeah. up with these crazy images, and two days later, everybody's like, "It's a dog filter. <laughs> it just sees dogs and everything." And, yeah, uh, that's true. It is a dog. But I mean, like one example I've seen, and what I think is really interesting, or a point I'd like to make, is that like one example I saw is like they they worked with Airbus to design like, or I can't remember if it was Boeing or Airbus to design cabin partitions, um, and it designed these like kind of like really um, sinewy, like wavy, organic forms. And and then they asked it to design a whole plane. And the plane looks like, you know, it came out of like like a Geiger, kind of like an alien movie or something mm-hmm. like that. But what's really interesting is like, given that, it, you know, we were talking about earlier about how an aesthetic should have sort of this non-utilitarian pleasure, right? That there should be some, it's, it's not the usefulness of the thing, that's the aesthetic. It's everything that's not useful about it. And what I found interesting is in this case, though, generative design and generative aesthetics are all about the utility. And actually, the style is just an afterthought that we read as, like, yeah. I don't know, biased human beings. It's also that humans think when something is uh, 
a very pure aesthetic that is probably geometric, but then a complex computer might uh, realize a more efficient use of the material and of the body would be this more ornamental organic shapes and this more Geiger shapes that are actually more functional. Yeah, and, but of course also there are plenty of artists in an art history where like the natural uh, form was celebrated yeah. as an aesthetic. But when, right? we, like but, that. but when we think of like a purely functional aesthetic, I always think of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, yeah. Well, because that was considered hideous and disgusting. And it was uh, engineer-driven and not artist-driven or architecture. Yeah, it, it was a it was a it was a blight on the Parisian landscape. But that it they wanted it to. came it, it 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 was so functional and so pure that it it created something completely new. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know whether we should bring the Bauhaus up, but like um, in regard to utility, like in, you know, as the Bauhaus you know generated you know new school of thought on aesthetics. In, you know, prior to the Second World War in Germany, their point of view was by mixing manufacturing uh, and utility with design that we could generate a new aesthetic that was, you know, accessible, economic, like profitable. That was accepting the new times and not trying to put the old times, the handwork into the machine. Yeah, but if you compared it to like, you know, previous generations, maybe with the exception of arts and crafts, like it was very simple um, and direct. And that was ne not necessarily viewed immediately as beautiful. And then certain people came along, like Ray and Charles Eames or, or you know, other figures uh, like Mies van der Rohe, and like presented it in a way that I guess, you know, eventually resonated. Whether Now, here's the question, whether critics helped build that aesthetic or whether people were just immediately, like it was like I was talking about earlier, when there's and like a economics new as well. Well, yeah, like it was available to everyone for sure. And so like maybe it's like it was like going to Ikea and you're like, well, that's good enough kind of thing. It's but, a bit um, like the um, urban planning of the U.S. and maybe also Canada. At some point it became car driven. And so all the areas between the destinations are unimportant. So the buildings are just there's no ornamentation whatsoever. Like the side mm -hmm. of, a, of a Walmart is just a wall, even without <laughs> windows, because nobody's certain, there. Uh, yeah. I mean, as I've argued before, like if you carry this train of thought, you should really believe that McDonald's is a beautiful thing, yeah. right? Like yeah. as I've said in the McDonald's episode, like it's a Bauhaus, the Bauhaus of food because it's very it's optimized, yeah, yeah, it's optimized and it's it's supreme utility. But like that's the exact opposite of the traditional yeah, it, definition of an aesthetic. And Jan Robert Leegte, the artist, did a lecture and he talked about. Uh, uh, Slot machines, the gambling machines, you put coins mm -hmm. in and you, you try to win. Uh, they have this thing called attractor mode. So the thing will blink in a sort of demo mode, but nobody's playing it. And it's meant to get your attention and get your trust and love. And you're like, ah, oh, this machine is inviting me. <laughs> so what he did is he, he stripped the machine of all the printed surfaces. So it was just the lights. So it's basically ah. a cupboard with lights that are blinking in a certain sequence. And that was scientifically engineered to make people spend money so they were not concerned with beauty they were concerned with how do we get people to give us all their money and then you get into this aesthetic the aesthetic of attraction which is very far from the Bauhaus aesthetic of uh, sort of subdued and functional this is the opposite it's like like a flower is is its only function is to attract mm -hmm. Yeah, the 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 actual. So so maybe what I'm saying is you're saying McDonald's is is purely functional, and the golden arches are meant to attract, and to, you can see it from no, no, miles yeah. away. And and the moment you see the, the golden arches, your your mouth starts to water because you think of the fries. 
Yeah, well, I guess you're making an interesting point too, or you're triggering a thought, which is that how how, how can we separate trigger warning? Our an- trigger warning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Anth- well, the anthropocentrism of what you're like, the, our, is our biology embedded? Like, is our biological point of view as humans? Like you mentioned the flower thing, I was like, yeah, well, that's like there are these kind of there's the golden ratio and there's all these kind of like systems that are apparently like engineered or evolved into our brains and this gets into very slippery territory i realize but like <laughs> this is the cringe that, part where we try to be scientists <laughs> well it's also the cringe part because like you very easily then end up at like ideal forms of beauty and then you know like like well ideal by whom and if you say it's evolution then it's like there's no choice in the matter right like i yeah. think inherent to everything we've been discussing up until this point is like you had a choice whether it was yeah. look good or not I, and but the, the one thing th- that always makes me hopeful is that at some point we think we've optimized it and then you think like, okay McDonald's narrowed it down they know exactly right. what is yummy and they know how to sell it right. so they've enhanced the flavors they enhanced the design and the ordering everything's efficient and then all of a sudden people are like hmm I want a good burger I don't want a fast burger yeah, but I'll just give you like one of the classic examples from photography, which is like the um, you know rule of two thirds or the third the thirds rule, right? Like if you divide the image up into two thirds and a third, like the horizon being on one of those thirds lines, yeah, you're kind of like, like it's guidelines an, an ideal. to help you make a better composition. Yeah, like the, but th- th- this is like some fundamental truth about aesthetics. You know, it, it occurs in it's been you know it's written about and accepted generally by you know, millions of people. So, you know, is it true or did we invent that? Is that, or when I say true, yeah. is it something that's, well, that we have a choice? An artist like uh, John Baldessari made works where he would take the rules of what you're not supposed to do in photography and do exactly that. He used that as an instruction. Right. So you're not supposed to put the main character of the photo right in the center, in front of a center line. So that's what he would do. Yeah, he wouldn't. Yeah, because you're supposed to put them off just off center, so they fit in that two thirds area. So yeah. you leave your like little. Yeah. So, and and I find myself when I'm shooting uh, in a commercial context, I'm like, oh, better follow those rules. I don't want this. Com- <laughs> I don't want this composition to stand out because then it'll distract from the message that I'm trying to deliver, right? But an artist would be in a position like Baldessari would say, like, well, I want to, I want to send a message that these rules are constructed <laughs> and therefore I'm going to like, I'm going to, yeah, upset yeah, the apple but the, cart. The, 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 the important thing to me is that he's not sending a message. He's just doing research on, and, mm. and, and he's not, he doesn't have an outcome in mind. And that's the difference with art and uh, advertising, I think. Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. So these, I mean, because there are a bunch of aesthetic rules, I could go through a long list, like in terms of like contrast, color, form, all yeah. these sort of aesthetic Well, there was the, rules. The, the era of 19th century academic painting and then uh, impressionists going against that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then of course, the you know, abstract expressionists were also trying to explore something about ourselves and the science of our brains that evoked emotion and trying to get scientific about that as a whole other thing. I feel like, you know, the point we're at now is um, like TED Talks have that kind of <laughs> that yeah. world. And then artists are just supposed to be, the, like you said uh, earlier. It feels to me, maybe, I think a lot of people feel exactly the other way, but it feels to me that uh, aesthetic research is frowned upon in, in these times. And mm-hmm. it's funny because as soon as you attack uh, art as pure play, you're basically saying, art has to become I'm exaggerating but then you're like well art should have a function it should make people it should 
promote egalitarian life and make sure that well that might be that might just be because we've exhausted the compositional or like the the, the color form and composition yeah. explorations that you mentioned like I mean, I can't do a Baldessari dip. Like, like there, it's you get to this point, and may, that's why I was pointing out the James Rattle new aesthetic kind of stuff, where it's like you're searching for what are the. But new, even in your the, work, what's the, the new the, vernacular? You've you've explored uh, very simple visual phenomena on mm-hmm. their own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like for me, the new aesthetic was relative to um, the computer and how it saw me and how I reacted to it, and so augmented yeah. reality was like a new aesthetic that I didn't think people were exploring as much as they should. I think it's fully, it's being fully explored now. And it's, it's very exciting. There's like tons of demos of people playing with it as an aesthetic and, and imagining new things Like you know, we thought we had hit some like barrier of like, you know, what was uh, possible in terms of composition, but like, it's, you know, suddenly when it's augmented reality, yeah, you're like walking around the composition yeah. and things change a little bit. It's right? a whole different approach. Yeah, and that's why people get excited about these new technologies. Same thing happened with VR, which of course we know is dead on arrival, and no one cares about. <laughs> Just kidding. It's like, oh, it's kidding. You, like, I thought that Zuckerberg was still like, we need to get a billion headsets in the world within the no, next two I know. years. I, I, I'm just joking. That's going to be my refrain, like just to upset all the. Do you, you know, do you have any hopes? I have a VR for, show coming up. Do you, do you have any hopes for VR? I, I just think that it's like it's too narrow. If you think talk about aesthetic, really, um, it needs to be and perception. It needs to be available to a broad swath of the population. And Zuckerberg is absolutely right for it to generate aesthetics and cultural meaning. It has to be accessible to a billion. But do you people. think it will? Um, In the I next don't think it years? will. No, because it's antisocial. And what I've been arguing all along today is that aesthetics are embedded in mm. social connection and social meaning. And so you, you cannot create. You, not, you cannot create an anti-social aesthetic. There is no such thing. So, and it, but if they manage to make it social, and they do have like you know plans to do that, maybe there would be aesthetics. But it's social that. within the helmet. It's not social outside of the helmet. Yeah, I mean, I could argue against that by saying like video games managed to be anti-social and have an aesthetic. But actually, I would argue that it wasn't until the internet came along that video game aesthetics from the 1980s, which had been marginalized to a nerd community, like actually became an aesthetic that was adopted on a, like a broader social. Yeah, level. That, that is interesting that. We often see art as a, a R and D, and then mm-hmm. uh, it's co-opted by popular culture later. That's but also, a, a lot of times, <laughs> art will take things from uh, popular culture and then appropriate them. So that's right. It before the Coca Cola bottle and the Campbell soup can were immortalized as art. That took a long time. They were out for already a few decades, and then before eight bit aesthetics were explored in in art the, that took 20 yeah it'd been 25 years and then yeah, it, yeah. it's funny that often artists will complain oh the fashion world co-opted my work but before that all the artists were co-opting everything else yeah i think that there's a there's this um it's like a circuit or an ecology it's always kind of churning through I, i'm actually not on the side of like it being bad only when Art artists kind of lose, but then I'm always like, art kind of artists and art and art in general kind of has positioned itself to lose, and 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 in a way, <laughs> as artists, we're like we're to blame a little bit because we're like we well we, we gave up victim. on skill and then yeah we have all, we have all the leverage and none of the ability to negotiate <laughs> <laughs> and and like I said earlier with the like vernacular web as an example or different glitch aesthetics or aesthetics of failure, it's almost like. Um, we're interested in the aesthetics that 
are unpopular, that's our research, right? And then we let other people popularize them. And I guess that's okay. Um, but it would be interesting to see if you artists actually do well <laughs> from the popularization of aesthetic. One, you know, thought that comes to mind is like K-Hole's like aesthetic around normcore. The trend um, research. Because they put out a satirical like trend report that people didn't read as satirical and then became mainstream. And it really does speak to this like... It became you know, like a, a fashion line for the gap, like be normal. Yeah. 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 But then it also... Be, and it also became like the worldwide trend in um, fashion, right? Yeah. And so regardless of the gap, it, it was already popularized yeah, in a very that's short also time. It's always funny... There's a zeitgeist, there's something going on. And mm-hmm. then there's people who are just a little bit too early. <laughs> and they are Artists frustrated. Usually. Yeah, and then they're frustrated <laughs> that the rest of the world ripped them off. But if they hadn't touched it, probably someone else... and Someone else would have done something else, I think. Yeah, or a but, bunch but, of other people I'm, might have done I'm the same thing. What I'm trying to get thing. at, you, you have people yeah. like... I think I mentioned this quote before, but Chuck Close is this painter who just always does his own thing. And he's like, well, once every 12, 15 years, you're in style, but you just keep doing your thing. Yeah. And so he's not a person where his work generated a tremendous trend. He's just doing yeah. his thing on his own. But there's And that's incredibly rare. Too. Yeah. But there's but, other yeah. types of artists who are like right before the big thing explodes. And does that mean they're kind of a follower of an invisible vibe or that they really create it? That, and it's really hard to know. <laughs> it is really hard to know. It's funny because, like, I mean, we're old enough as artists that we've had friends who have changed their style a couple times, right? Yeah. And, we're, you're, you know, I'm sure, and I have too, and I've had people be like, I, why don't you do like, stuff like the old <laughs> I had my Rococo phase, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you're, and also when you see your friends doing it, you're like, ooh, like, I don't know if that's the right track that they're on. Why, you know, ooh, I don't know. And then over time, you're like, oh, that's kind of getting interesting. And like, you know, uh, eventually it ends up somewhere either great or bad. But like, you don't know. Like, it's that not knowing, I guess, yep. that creates the anxiety. Um, anyway, I I think in the in the end, it, it does come down to perception, which was your original point. Um, but I, my point is just that that perception is social and not solipsistic. That there yeah. are there is no aesthetic without a social understanding of um, the context. So. Um, I don't know. Do we want to keep talking or no? I think this is a this is a nice uh, ending. Yeah, I want to introduce. We didn't get a field recording from our listeners this week, so we chose one of my uh, library. And I went to brunch with Christina. Like, oh, let's go a little bit to the west side. Usually we're on the east side, and it's a bit more broy over there. And we get (laughs) to this. Wait, broy in the village? Not in the village. In Tribeca. Oh, okay, it's like a bit like Soho people who come here for shopping and they're kind of mm-hmm. and we, yeah. we're like oh this uh, we like Mexican food we're always happy to try a Mexican place and they just had the loudest music and uh, <laughs> unlimited margaritas and it's basically a nightclub but you're like who enjoys brunch with the-? so you'll hear the music and it's 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 not even exaggerated in the recording it was like hard to talk to each other it was that loud you like who enjoys food with this volume of music <laughs> and like, am i getting old or yeah yeah that reminds me i took my parents to an izakaya one time and they're like you know they're yelling you know izakaya like a japanese kind of pub and it's like they yell when people come in they yell when they leave but then they were also playing loud music and they're like yelling orders in the kitchen it's like hello, hello <laughs> and they're like it's what like is going on yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like we yeah. can't have a conversation <laughs> All right, let's listen to it. Okay, uh, thank you for listening. Thank- yeah, send in your field report. Okay.